Hello, my chicken saints. Welcome back. Last week we studied 1 Nephi 1 through 5. I hope you enjoyed our, our head first dive into the text itself. And I hope that you put up with me for an extra hour. Uh, for those of you who are longtime listeners, we basically did half time. And for those that were looking forward to a one hour video, we did double time. So we're, well, I'll keep working on it. Okay, bear with me. Uh, but today is a about as perfect a sequel of last week's lesson as you can imagine. Because the way chapter 5 ended last week, the boys have come back with the plates. Mom's thrilled. Dad wants the scriptures. And so it's like, son, give them to me. And he begins to search them from the beginning, finding that they are of great worth unto them. And realizing that for his sake and ours, it is wisdom in God that we should carry these books with us in our journey through the wilderness toward the promised land. Now, as far as the narrative of the story is concerned, the next moment in the storyline comes in chapter 7. We go from 5 to 7 because it's actually really interesting the way it works out because if he's studying these scriptures from the very beginning and he's told us that they begin with the books of Moses, including an account of the creation and of Adam and Eve, I picture Lehi there in the wilderness reading this and going, oh, and it is not good for man to be alone. Oh, no. And he just realized that I've brought four Adams with me and they don't have any Eves with them. So something's got to change. And right there at the beginning of chapter 7, he sends his boys back to Jerusalem. There's no complaints this time around uh, to go find Ishmael and his family that has more Eves than Adams to match up with, with Lehi and Sariah who had more Adams than Eves. Okay? Seriously, match made in heaven. We'll see more of that when we get to chapter 7. But that's the question. Why not jump straight to chapter 7? Again, as far as the storyline is concerned, chapter 6 is an interruption of the narrative. It gets in the way. And ironically, if you were to remove chapter 6 from 1 Nephi, the storyline would flow better, not worse. That's usually not the case when you skip a chapter. Now, the best example of this I can see in the Old Testament is Genesis chapter 38 which in some ways has nothing to do with chapter 37 before it or 39 after it. It interrupts the narrative. And if you were to pull out Genesis 38, completely skip it, you wouldn't miss a beat in the storyline of Joseph being sold into Egypt. However, it's included there because it serves a fascinating purpose that intensifies and helps us appreciate better all that comes after it. And in a way, chapter 6 of 1 Nephi is doing the same kind of Oh, narrative heavy lifting, okay? Interrupting so that we, it, it makes the, what comes after more meaningful to us. Got it? So let's read it. We're going to see all six verses. We're going to go verse by verse on this one because it's really important. Uh, what Nephi is going to do in chapter 6 is talk about the gold plates, his project, okay? Uh, this, this major gift that he's giving us by way of his ministry. And in some ways, that's perfect based on the way chapter 5 ends. Again, storyline, go from 5 to 7. But it's as if Nephi is, is recording this, writes down that we brought home the brass plates. Dad began to search them from the start. This was a new book for him. And as right as he began reading them, he realized this, this book is worth its weight in brass. Uh, it's incredible. We need this book. And it, it makes me wonder if right in that moment, Nephi realizes, well, my readers are having a similar experience. They've just obtained a record. It's new to them. Will they realize that this book is worth its weight in gold? Will they understand my purpose in writing it and realize that, yes, it's wisdom in God that they carry this book with them 
in their wilderness wanderings toward the promised land. That's why he stops, stares out of the, uh, into the camera. He breaks the fourth wall to be able to address his Latter-day readers. This is what this book is going to be all about. So keep this in mind with everything moving forward. First Nephi chapter 6, verse 1, And now I, Nephi, do not give the genealogy of my fathers in this part of my record. Neither at any time shall I give it after upon these plates which I am writing. For it is given in the record which has been kept by my father, wherefore I do not write it in this work. Eh, for it sufficeth me to say that we are descendants of Joseph. Now, you uh, incredible family historians out there realize that this is some lousy genealogy. He skipped all kinds of generations to say, yeah, Joseph's back there somewhere. We come from his tribe. Okay, we're, we're good. Now, it's actually interesting because he's going to start this chapter, which tells us what the Book of Mormon's about, by admitting what it's not about. And I say admit for good reason. In some ways, he's apologizing for the way he's starting his book for the fact that he's not starting with his family history. I actually met someone who was attacking the Book of Mormon. Now, I have those kinds of conversations with people that, uh, that don't believe in, in the gospel. And this, this skeptic pointed out, if the Book of Mormon were really an ancient Semitic text, if it were what it claims to be, and it were some kind of ancient Hebrew record, then it would begin with genealogy. And I remember joking at, at first with this, conver this conversation partner saying, wait, is, that's what you want? Is that, is that what you look forward to when you study the Old Testament? He begat him, and he begat him, and begat him, and begat him, and all the way down. Those are usually the chapters I kind of skip over. Uh, and I laughed, and he didn't. Uh, but he said, no, it's so important for a Hebrew writer to establish his credibility by way of lineage, Go reread the book of Ezra, for example, and if you can't trace your genealogical line back to the tribe of Levi, no priesthood for you. At least that's the way it's described there. Now, what's interesting, as he'd made this point and said, if the Book of Mormon were a true ancient Semitic text, it would start with, with genealogy. I've actually asked this question of my students, and some of them have said, well, 116 pages. Uh, it could have been on that, and maybe the Book of Mormon actually did begin with genealogy. I said, ooh, that's good. It's speculative, but, but it's good speculation. And actually, we see in this first verse that there's probably some truth to that. It is given in the record which has been kept by my father. So he must have included a, a clearer genealogy than Nephi did. Uh, to this conversation partner of mine, I said, well, go to the Book of Ether. You're the end of the Book of Mormon, and in the, at the very beginning of the Jaredite record, what do you have? A page worth of genealogy. And he begat him, and he begat him, and so forth. Uh, it, it's actually interesting to me, and I pointed this out to him, your complaint in terms of an argument against the Book of Mormon actually becomes an argument for the Book of Mormon. Because if it's an ancient Hebrew text, and it's supposed to begin with genealogy, and Lehi says it, or Nephi says it did in Lehi's part, but when he's beginning his own book, he apologizes for it. To me, that's fascinating that it's as if he knows the convention. He knows the way this book is supposed to begin. But feeling content that dad had done that job for him, and he wasn't going to start his with a reiteration since it's one generation later, he just cuts to the chase and skips over the genealogical portion. But again, the fact he's nervous about that and has to explain himself and apologize for this apparent omission would suggest what's going on in his mind.
Okay, fascinating. I also want you to keep this in mind when we get to the smallest portion of the small plates. When we get to Jerem and Omni especially, uh, as they're passing down the plates very in a speedy succession, what part does genealogy play then? And how does that compare to the part that it doesn't play for Nephi? Okay, so first admission, this is not going to be a book focused on genealogy. Uh, verse 3, here's the second admission. It mattereth not to me that I am particular to give a full account of all the things of my father, for they cannot be written upon these plates. Now, some have said, oh, well, this, the Book of Mormon, isn't that a history of the ancient inhabitants of the Americas as far as religi their religious views are concerned? Well, yes and no. If it's history, it, well, what kind of history is it? Because as a historian myself, if I would have turned in any paper during my graduate years to my history professors that said something along those lines, yeah, I'm not going to be really particular in this history. I'm not going to give a full account of the things that, of all the things that happened, because it really mattereth not. That would raise the eyebrows of my history professors. They'd say, uh, what do you think history is? It's, we've got to be particular. We're trying to give as full an account as we can, because yes, it mattereth. So, F for you, <laughs> okay? Well, again, from Nephi's perspective, is that his goal? I'm not trying to establish genealogy, nor am I emphasizing history. I'm going to include just enough of it that there's a skeleton upon which I can attach some flesh. But the flesh of this story is of much more important stuff. It is an incarnation of Christ that we're seeing on the page. So don't worry about what's happening in terms of every historical detail of Nephites versus Lamanites and so forth. Mormon himself will say, I can't even include the 100th part. And so as far as history is concerned, there are whole uh, centuries passed over in a verse or two. And then it's like he pulls the emergency break during the, the rain, or during the ministry of Alma and really pours over a lot of detail. Again, it's not, it's not good history, but it's incredible theology. And that's the point Nephi is trying to make. Look at the end of 3 and verse 4, and it will tell you his stated purpose for these plates. I'm not going to do genealogy, I'm not going to do history, for I desire the room that I may write of the things of God. That's what this book is. The study of God is theo, that's theos is God, ology, study of, and so the things of God, the study of God, this is going to be theological first and foremost. And here's why. For the fullness of mine intent. Now that's about as strong a thesis statement kind of language as you can get. What's the purpose of my paper? You can, you've all written history papers or English papers where you have to start with some kind of thesis statement near the beginning. Establishing the purpose of your paper. This is the argument I'm trying to prove. Well, think of the language here. The fullness of mine intent is that I may persuade men to come unto the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and be saved. That, in one sentence, is the book's central purpose. Let me give you a chart <laughs> that might help in terms of what the Book of Mormon is as compared to what the Book of Mormon isn't. By its own self-identification, okay, this book is not meant to be primarily descriptive. That would have been history. No, this is meant to be primarily persuasive. It's trying to persuade you to do something to act on its central invitation, which is to come unto Christ. 
He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you'll come to him, he will save you. That's the entire point of this book of Scripture. Not its history, not its genealogy. It's persuasive power to convince you that Christ is an approachable being, that God is a loving, welcoming Father. Arms outstretched, come and see. Just as Jesus said, beginning his ministry, the Book of Mormon begins its ministry with the same invitation. Come and see. Come and see Jesus for who he really is. So again, it's persuasive, not descriptive. Let me put that in different terms. It doesn't intend to be expository as much as it intends to be rhetorical. And what I mean by rhetorical is Aristotle's definition. He defined rhetoric as, the, as making use of all the available means of persuasion. And again, if this book is meant to persuade, then yes, it's a rhetorical effort. I am trying to convince you. Do you remember that line from the title page? To convince Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ. This is a persuasive, rhetorical work. And it's meant to change our minds and change our hearts. And because of that, it is far more reader-oriented than writer-oriented. Yes, you can see the fingerprints of Nephi or Mormon all over the text, but it is meant to affect us. It's aiming at us. It breaks the fourth wall like no other book of Scripture I've ever seen. That's why you get Mormon so often interrupting his narrative to say, and thus we see. It's like he's looking out at his readers and trying to gauge our level of understanding. Are you seeing the same thing I'm seeing? I hope so. That's why I'm trying to make it as, as clear as I can. Because if you see this, it will affect your behavior. You'll understand what you need to do based on what I've taught. And, and that's the rhetorical, persuasive power of this book of Scripture. As a result of that, it is less a window to the past, although it does help us see that. But it's more of a mirror for the present. That's why I was talking about Book of Mormon stories a couple of weeks ago. And it's yours that matter most. What will your experience in this text be? This book, yes, gives some information on the world behind the text, the cultures and civilization that produced it. There is better information on the world within the text and understanding the kinds of lives that were lived right there on the page. But its greatest contribution is in its effect on the world in front of the text. And that's the world you and I live in. What will it do to us? Because this book is not so much an object as it is an agent. As an agent, it, it doesn't care so much about being an object because it has an object. That is an objective. And the objective statement right there in verse 4 is to change us. It's to make Christians out of us. It's to convince us that we can come unto Christ and that we must, because only thereby can salvation come. As a result of that, look at verse 5, Wherefore, so because of this stated intent, which is meant to affect every single authorial and editorial decision from this moment forward, so wherefore, the things which are pleasing unto the world I do not write. Sorry, if that's what you're looking for, find a different book. There's lots of those. Amazing worldly page turners that will please people that are looking for that kind of action. But no, this isn't that. Forget about those pleasing unto the world. But the things which are pleasing unto God and unto those who are not of the world. And what I love about that statement is it shows that the Book of Mormon is a barometer 
to our spiritual sensitivities. It's a way to gauge my own spiritual taste buds. Because if I find no savor in this scripture, it tells me about my own interests, my own desires, my own spiritual sensitivities. If, if, it's, if it feels boring, for example, am I so intoxicated by the action-packed thrillers where the, the, the mile-a-minute kind of explosions that we see in Hollywood blockbusters, as opposed to the gentleness, the peace and power of the Holy Spirit, to think about what this book is trying to accomplish. It, uh, President Benson used to say that the Book of Mormon is not on trial. We are. And I get that sense right there in verse 5. That... Actually, put it this way, have there been times in your life where the Book of Mormon has meant everything to you, and other times when the book has not meant very much? At times, it's almost like sports. Some games you're in the zone, and some you're not. And the game hasn't changed, you have. The book hasn't changed, we have. And so if I am ready to open this book and begin a serious study so that that power can immediately begin to flow into my life, that tells me something about my, myself my own spiritual preparation. And if it's a, uh, take it or leave it, I'm getting nothing out of this. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm not trying to condemn anyone. I'm just trying to put the thermometer under their tongue to get a sense of how they're doing right now. And if you meet someone who has no spiritual taste for the Book of Mormon, I wouldn't chide them. I wouldn't condemn them. I wouldn't pass some kind of final judgment I would be much more curious to know about the experiences they've had just in life, uh, their perceptions and perspectives on God and God's interaction with his children, with that child right in front of me particularly, because it's their attitude toward this book of scripture that will speak volumes about how they're doing. Keep that in mind. And then notice verse 6, wherefore... So again, because of this foundational authorial decision that we're going to only do the things that will bring people to Christ, because of that, wherefore, I shall give commandment unto my seed that they shall not occupy these plates with things which are not of worth unto the children of men. Remember, that's how chapter 5 ended. We found out that this, these brass plates were of great worth unto us. Well, that's what Nephi is basing his... That's the criteria he wants all of his posterity to use when they're deciding what to write down. So picture Mormon thinking, what 100th part do I include? Well, it better be the things of God. It better be the things that are of greatest worth. It better have persuasive power to convince people that they can come unto the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob so they can be saved. Salvation is the ultimate design of this book of Scripture. And if Nephi had his way, and he does by and large, everything written in it will point us and pull us to Jesus Christ. I love that. It actually helps put in perspective something he said even earlier. Because sometimes when you're writing a book or a, or a paper, if you wait too long to get to your thesis statement, sometimes people kind of get lost. Like, wait, why am I reading this? Should I keep turning pages? And chapter 6, six chapters into it, might feel a little late. Well, for that then, go back to chapter 1. 
And in chapter 1, Nephi actually gives us his initial thesis statement. And he phrases it like any good thesis statement would be. And it comes right at the end of this, this first chapter, which is a great place to put a, a, a thesis. Listen to it. I skipped over it last week. But in the midst of all of this conversation about learning from the Lord that Lehi taught us last week, uh, as, as Nephi is recounting this and saying that dad went and preached all that he learned, he was persecuted as a result. But de despite all this persecution, notice how the chapter ends. But I, Nephi, will show unto you that the tender mercies of the Lord are over all those whom he hath chosen because of their faith to make them mighty even unto the power of deliverance. That is another thesis statement for the Book of Mormon. Think about how he said it. I will show unto you, again, that's thesis language. The purpose of my paper is, the fullness of my intent is, what I'm going to prove. In fact, I remember writing my dissertation and my, my advisor kept saying, make sure every chapter moves the ball forward. Within a chapter, make sure that every, every uh, paragraph moves the point of that chapter forward. Uh, it felt like almost a football coach, like run north and south. Quit going side to side with all these. There, there's so much movement here that doesn't get us closer to the end zone. So with everything you include, make sure it's proving your point. Make every argument matter. And that's what Nephi is saying here. I'm going to show you my purpose is, that the, is to prove that the tender mercies of the Lord are over all, at least all whom he has chosen. Well, how do you get chosen? Well, because of their faith. Ah, you mean God chooses me as soon as I choose him? Yes, exactly. If we'll choose God, God chooses us. So because of our faith, he chooses to do what? To make us mighty through his grace, through his power, mighty enough to be delivered from our sins or our sorrows, from our myopic view of the world from our misperceptions of him, like we saw last week with Laman and Lemuel. What kind of God is Nephi introducing us to? A God of tender mercies. They're over all. Just have faith. You'll be delivered. Look at dad. That's exactly what happened with Lehi. He was delivered from the, his persecutors in Jerusalem because he had faith in God. And that same, and because he chose God, God chose him, revealed to him his will. Take your family and flee. And he did. And look at all the grace he's been giving us ever since. One of the months where I did, when I did that Book of Mormon marathon, it was a tender mercy month. And from start to finish, I tried to find proof for Nephi's thesis. And it's everywhere. The God that the Book of Mormon presents to its readers is approachable. He is a merciful Messiah, a compassionate Christ, one that stands with arms outstretched, beckoning us to come unto the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and be saved. Think back to Moroni's title page. Again, not only to convince Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, but to show our fathers the great things that God has done for them. To help them see that they're not cast off forever. That God keeps his covenant, and it's a covenant of compassion. To me, no... When, when Moroni wrote the title page, he must have had Nephi's thesis statement in mind because it echoes it. In fact, when Moroni wrote his promise at the end of Moroni 10, he must have had Nephi's thesis statement in mind. 
because how does he say it? Remember, it's not just search the Book of Mormon and pray about it. It's think about how merciful God has been from the creation on down to the time that you have this book in your own hands. Yes, reader, I'm speaking to you. And ponder how merciful God has been because that's what this book has been trying to persuade you of. If Nephi says, I'm going to show you the tender mercies of God, and then Moroni says, is he that way? Did it work? Did the Book of Mormon do its job? Did it prove its point and persuade you to come unto Christ? In that light, the question you ask from Moroni's promise is not, is the book true? But rather, did the book work? And by the end of that experience, by the end of this year's experience in the text, oh, I pray that the Book of Mormon has worked for you, that it proved its point and served its purpose. Time will tell. And in the meantime, are we coming unto Christ based on the portrayal of the Savior that this magnificent scripture gives us? That's what it all boils down to. Okay? Now, with chapter 6, you can actually skip ahead to chapter 9 because it's one other interesting interruption. Uh, there's no narrative flow there. It's another time where the, where the storyline stops in its tracks. But in chapter 9, and I'll just say this very, very briefly. We're going to water ski over this one. It's when God tells Nephi, good work making these plates. You need to make another, another copy. I want two sets of plates. It's actually funny the way you read it, because he's like, okay, I'm supposed to have two sets of plates. One's going to be big, one's going to be small. Uh, the big ones, I'm going to call the plates of Nephi. And these small ones, I guess I'll just call the plates of Nephi. Oh, wait, I already used that. Oh, darn it. Now nah, it's already engraved in gold. I can't go back and erase. Oh, well, uh, well I guess we'll, in, in subsequent history, they'll refer to them as the large plates and the small plates. Good enough. The large ones will be for the reigns of the kings, uh, the basic history that this one's not going to be. Remember what he said in chapter 6? But this one, these small plates of Nephi, will be for the ministry. That's the fullness of my intent. You could picture him then saying, then why write the big ones? Well, someone later is going to ask, why write the small ones? Just trust me on this. And that's what Nephi does. At the end of chapter 9, he, sa he basically asks, why do I have to do this? It sure seems redundant to me. Well, I don't know. And he fully admits that. There's some humility on his part. I don't know what I'm doing here. Why I have to write two different copies. But God does. And that's how he ends things in chapter 9. The Lord hath commanded me to make these things for a wise purpose in him, which purpose I know not. But the Lord knoweth all things from the beginning. Wherefore, he prepareth a way to accomplish all his works among the children of men. Can you hear the echo of 1 Nephi 3.7 there? He commands and he prepares a way to accomplish it. For behold, he hath all power unto the fulfilling of all his words. And thus it is. Amen. And that's enough for him. He learned that in the dark streets of Jerusalem a few chapters ago. That when God commands, just do it. And obedience is what he is asking of me. Thus it is. Amen. I'm going to do this. In a couple of weeks, we, or months, a couple of months actually, we will see when we study Words of Mormon why this is so important and why a God who sees the end from the beginning can put some things in place at the beginning that will save us all by the end. Now, if that is all, oh, director's cut kind of material, 
If what we see in chapter 6 and chapter 9 is more to explain what Nephi is doing as an author and editor, then let's get back to the story. And like I said, chapter 5 ends with, Nephi, with Lehi reading scripture and accounts of Adam and Eve. And then chapter 7 begins with the realization, oh no, we need more Eves. So boys, will you please go back to Jerusalem and find, he's very specific, find Ishmael and his family and convince them to come with us on our journey. Now, I want you to think for a moment, especially any of you who have proposed, okay, whether successfully or unsuccessfully, okay, I've, I'm guilty of both as well, all with the same person. Uh, some of you know that story. But think about what kind of a proposal it would be. Uh, imagine Laman, Lemuel, Nephi, uh, Sam and Nephi all getting down on one knee in, in, in a row and, and proposing to the daughters of Ishmael. I know that's not how it was done back in, the, in that day. But imagine the kind of proposal they're making. Oh, will you marry? What was your name again? I, I know I don't know you. You don't know me. Uh, we'll make covenants like, like Nephi and Zoram did. It'll erase fear and give us courage. Okay, we learned that last week. But uh, hey, perfect stranger, would you like to join me on a journey that never ends? Uh, you'll be giving up all of your earthly possessions just like we already did. Oh yeah, sorry, Ishmael. We've got no, nothing to give you. We don't have the 10 camels of Abraham's servant. We don't even have the eight cows of Johnny Lingo. We got nothing for you, okay? <laughs> we got brass plates. Uh, we have uh, tents and camels, uh, but that's because we need them to journey through the wilderness because that's all we got for you now. Uh, but I mean, hold out hope. Dad said we'll have a promised land. And though the only land of promise a, a Jew has ever, ever heard of, a Hebrew has ever had in mind, was Israel? Yeah, just trust us. God has something better in store. What do you say? Will you marry me? Now, I'm amazed that they would have the courage to even attempt. I thought I, had, I, thought I was making a rough offer. You want to marry me? Uh, <laughs> a life of obscurity and poverty awaits you, okay? Uh, but I'll do my best. And to me, when you look at chapter 7, I, I love the way it's described right from the start. Chapter 7, if you look at verse 1 at the end, it's when it dawns on Lehi, I can't take my family into the wilderness alone. My sons have to have daughters so they can raise up seed unto the Lord in the land of promise. In fact, there's an interesting phrase in there when he says, it was not meat for him to go alone. Well, if it's not meat, no wonder you need and help meat for you, which is exactly what Adam realized in the garden. Help, we need helps meet for one another. Equal partners to move forward on our journey to the promised land. They will all need that. So he tells them to go back. And if you look at verse 4, how's this for your proposal? Came to pass that we went up into the house of Ishmael and we did gain favor in the sight of Ishmael. That's absolutely essential. That's why missionaries try to start by oh, establishing a relationship of trust trying to gain favor in the sight of the person. Because a missionary invitation is a proposal of sorts as well. Will you study the gospel? Will you join the church? Will you be baptized and make a covenant to launch out into an unknown wilderness with hopes of a promised land awaiting? Okay? It's, again, I'm amazed that missionaries invite people to be baptized so quickly. It's like proposing on a first date. And essentially, that's exactly what Lehi's sons are doing here. 
So first they gained favor in Ishmael's sight, insomuch that we did speak unto him the words of the Lord. And that's a key aspect of this too. It's not, yeah, it's not some earthly proposal. It, this is no mere mortal marriage. This is a, a union of divine design. And it is not just me on my knee. This is God in heaven inviting you to come and join him as he leads us toward the promised land. When a missionary extends that kind of invitation, you'll be amazed at the responses of the Ishmaels of the world that find themselves agreeing to do the unthinkable, the impossible, the unimaginable, but there's something about you that I know you're speaking the word of God to me, and I'll follow his will wherever it leads. Thus, verse 5, it came to pass that the Lord did soften the heart of Ishmael. And that's absolutely essential as well. That's the only hope you've got. Well, in my case, the only hope I had was that God would soften the heart of my wife and she would say yes to me. Same here with Ishmael. God softened his heart and also his household insomuch that they took their journey with us down into the wilderness to the tent of our father. And I love the fact that he brought everybody with him. In some ways... Ishmael and his wife would have been unnecessary. In some ways, any oh, previously married uh, child of Ishmael, well, we don't need them either. I only need enough kids for my kids to marry. But no, that would be breaking up a family. And if the whole purpose of this part of the journey was to create families, then let's not destroy one in order to create others. Okay? So they all come. But the interesting thing about this, and this is where the plot really thickens in chapter 7, and, and to me it becomes one of the great lessons of what to do if someone in your wagon train, someone that's with you on the journey of life, if they decide they don't want to continue traveling. If this is a spiritual journey, what do you do when loved ones, when family members decide they don't want to keep going. When they don't think there's a promised land on the other side, that a softened heart becomes hardened again, and they think life is better back in Jerusalem, and so I might as well just go. And they threaten, or not just threaten, but act on it. They leave the church. They leave God. They break their covenants. They go on a different journey in a different direction. What do you do? To me, First Nephi chapter 7, right here at the beginning of the book, teaches us some incredible truths about that. So let's see some principles unfold. In verse 6 and 7, you see which ones are on Nephi's side and which ones opt to join Laman and Lemuel. Because you know it, it's Laman saying, well, I want to go back to the land of my inheritance. Well, maybe if, now that Laban's gone, we can get our stuff back. Okay, uh, I want, I'd, rather, I'd rather do that. And sure enough, there end up being two daughters of Ishmael that side with them. I mean, talk about a match made in heaven, right? Uh, Lamanina and Lemuelina. I, I don't know what their names would have been, but they seem to be tailor-made, cut from the same kind of cloth as Laman and Lemuel. There are two sons of Ishmael that want to go back home also. So again, they seem to be kindred spirits of Nephi's older brothers. Uh, those are the only two sons that Ishmael has, according to the record. He's got other daughters, and that's good, because Nephi is going to want to marry somebody more like him than, more like, than, than like Laman. But you now have a division, 
And some of you have experienced that in your own families, where some children are staying faithful and other children are, are walking away. And what do I do? Now, we, we can't see ne uh, Lehi and Sariah here. From based on chapter 5, you wonder how they would react if they were there present. But we do see Nephi's response, and it's a fascinating one. Now, for this first part, look at verse 8 and just listen to his words spoken to his older brothers as they're planning on, on apostatizing, okay, leaving all of this. He says, Behold, ye are mine elder brethren. How is it that ye are so hard in your heart, so blind in your minds that you need that I, your younger brother, should speak unto you? Yea, set an example for you. Can you picture how angry, frustrated Nephi would be? He's just kind of spitting out those words. You hard-hearted, blind-minded punk. Older brother that's acting like my little one. What, do I really have to coddle you? Show you the way? <laughs> Change your diaper and wipe your nose? Come on. You know better than this. Ooh, talk about a wonderful way to win friends and influence people. How would Laman and Lemuel respond to that? Just with greater anger. They will match your anger and then raise you some. If that's how you respond... I think often people who are leaving the church are waiting to see the response of those they tell. And it will either justify their decision or make them second-guess it. To me, the biggest tragedy is when somebody says they're going to leave the church and then we respond in such a way that they feel good about the decision. Like, yep, I'm leaving because Latter-day Saints are judgmental and you just proved my point. Or they care about the gospel more than about me. And yep, as, as you slam the door and tell me where I'm going. Now, I want to salvage Nephi for a moment. Because I purposely read it wrong just now. Now, I read the words correctly. But with the completely wrong tone of voice. Have you ever sent a text and known you have to include a certain emoji? Because without the emoji... The text itself could be read in all kinds of ways that you didn't intend. Well, that's what happens here. When it says that he said, you're mine elder brother, and that you're heart in heart and blind in mind, that's the words, that's the language he used. But notice what it says at the beginning of verse 8. And now I, Nephi, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, therefore I spoke unto them. And that's when you read what I read before. So how would you read it now that you know it's not anger as the guiding emotion, rather it is sorrow. It is godly grief from a younger brother who grew up probably idolizing Laman. Biggest brother. Until he saw where his brother was leading and chose to be an alternate leader to give Sam and even Lemuel if he wanted to a second choice. Oh, behold, ye are mine elder brethren. How is it that ye are so hard in your hearts, so blind in your minds, that ye have need that I, your younger brother? Can you sense there? Nephi doesn't want to lead. He has no intent to usurp family authority. I, I'm just your younger brother. How is it that you would need that someone as lowly as me should speak unto you, yea, and set an example for you. Please read everything that goes forward in the tone of sorrow, informed by love, not anger, informed by frustration, 
or wrath. What does Nephi do in this situation? What can you and I do if someone is struggling spiritually and threatening to leave the covenant path? Well, again, approach them in a sorrowful love and then begin to remind them as best you can of spiritual experiences. That's what Nephi does in verse 10 and 11 and 12. They all begin with, how is it that ye have forgotten? In the first one, it's their own spiritual experience. You have seen an angel. Or more generally, the great things the Lord hath done for us. That's almost straight from the title page. He's delivered us from the hands of Laban. He's helped us obtain the record. He's done all of these things. From that personal to the more familial, now how's this for the universal? How could you forget that God is able to do all things? According to his will for the children of men. There's another echo of 1 Nephi 3.7. He can do all things, if it so be that they exercise faith in him. There's an echo of his thesis statement, right? He is those whom he hath chosen because of their faith. He'll make them mighty unto the power of deliverance. He can do that. That's what makes him so tender and merciful in all that he does. Wherefore, here's his oh, take away from all of those memories. Let us be faithful to him. That's all I'm asking. And notice the plural pronoun there. Let us. I'm with you. I'm here. We can do this. Look at all that God has done for you and for us and for others. Please, can we be faithful together? Then in verse 13, notice this. If it so be that we are faithful to him. And there's the we again. It's as if he's including himself on their side. That's an if. If we'll be faithful I understand where you're coming from, but if it so be that we are faithful to him, we shall obtain the land of promise. That's my testimony. And ye shall know at some future period that the word of the Lord shall be fulfilled concerning the destruction of Jerusalem. We don't know it for sure now, but we will someday. And just to try to offer them your best view of what the future holds, if we can simply stay faithful to the Lord, things will get better. God promises. He then says in verse 15, Behold, I say unto you that if ye will return unto Jerusalem, ye shall perish with them. That's why we left in the first place. That's what dad was prophesying about. And that's not just foolish imaginations from a visionary man. Those things are true. I prayed about them. God softened my heart. I'm with you. I was, I was tempted to murmur just like you have. But everything changed when the revelation came. So don't go back. You'll perish. But then notice what he says. This is a key passage for this whole chapter. And now, if ye have choice, and they do, he's honoring that. I know you can make your own decision. You're my big brothers. And what, am I going to like bind and gag you and drag you back home to mom and dad? I, I can't. So if ye have choice, fine, go up to the land. And remember the words which I speak unto you, that if ye will go, ye will also perish. For thus the Spirit of the Lord constraineth me that I should speak. Now what amazes me here is the way Nephi approaches his brothers. The end there is one important clue. We have to say the things of the Spirit as guided by the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, our anger is going to get in the way. Our frustration will fill our mouths with things we shouldn't say. 
things will come across in a negative way instead of a way that honors the humanity, the spiritual experiences, the, the identity of the other person, elder brother, party to spiritual experiences, miraculous events. Oh, I know who you really are, big brother. Someone who could set an incredible example. I just want to follow you into the wilderness and keep following you toward the promised land once our mother and father pass on. This could have been the book of Laman from the start instead of the book of Nephi. And I think Nephi would have been fine with it. Say whatever the Spirit constrains you to. But notice the three elements of what Nephi has said in that last verse. Because they perfectly parallel what I call the Samuel principle from the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, it's the story where the Israelites want to have a king so they can be like all the other nations. And that's wrong. And Samuel knows it. He's ready to say, over my dead body. But God reigns him in and says, okay, okay, let's, let's think this through. Are you really going to be able to stop them? you got the whole house of Israel basically rebelling. And please understand, it's between them and me, not between them and you. They haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. If anyone should be angry about this, it's me. And isn't that true about your prodigal child? Your, your wandering friend? It's between them and God, not them and you. Keep that in mind. It will allow you to approach things from a healthier emotional place. So what does God tell Samuel to do? Three things. He says, hearken unto their voice, which must have been so hard for Samuel to hear. Like, what? We're just going to give in? We're going to roll over and let them do what's wrong? And, so, and God's like, well, yeah, that's what agency is. We teach them correct principles and let them govern themselves. And even when they're govern governing themselves in the wrong way, especially when it's the house of Israel, especially when it's an adult child like Laman would have been, Again, what are you going to do? Hogtie them? No, at the end of the day, they will do what they're going to do. And there's nothing you can do about that. So again, better not intensify their emotions by some kind of over my dead body reaction. No, we're going to hearken to their voice. But that's not all. The key part of this is to hold that on one side of the balance, but put something else on the other side. Yes, there's a contrary we have to prove here. And for any of you parents or friends or family members of those who are struggling, you've got to master the Samuel principle. So let's finish the verse. Therefore, hearken unto their voice. That's the first part. Honor their agency. Howbeit yet, and this is where he's like, whoa, 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 but before you overcorrect, before you just say, fine, what, who am I to get in your way and, and just go on back and I'm not going to say anything about it. No, that's an abdication of our parental responsibilities. That is a surrender of our love. Because my, my, the love I have for them uh, is what makes it, makes it so hard to say yes and honor their agency. I can't take that to the extreme where I stop their agency, but I can't take it to the opposite extreme where their agency forces me to abdicate my own. So what part does my agency play? Here's the other half of it, okay? Hearken unto their voice, how be it yet, number one, protest solemnly unto them. Not angrily, 
but solemnly. With the power of the Holy Ghost, let them know how you feel. Which would take you in a different direction from the one they're headed toward. That, why do you think Nephi is saying, I, I, I wish you wouldn't go. I wish you'd stay. That's my will. I see yours. And at the end of the day, I'm going to honor it. But I have to speak up for my will too. And then the third thing, and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. Try to help them see what the future of their decision holds. And that's exactly what Nephi does here too. That's amazing. In Samuel's day, he lets them do what they want. And yes, they end up going that way, unfortunately. That's the first, hearken to their voice. But second, protest. And he does. He lets them know how he feels. And third, show them the manner. And he does. He prophesies the kinds of kings they'll end up having. And sure enough, all that happens. Nephi has done exactly the same. If ye have choice, there's honoring agency. Go up. But please know that that is not God's will. Now he's protesting solemnly. Or when he says, let us be faithful to him. That's the leg that Nephi is standing on. And then finally, show them the manner. Well, if it so be, ye shall perish with the others in Jerusalem. Nephi does it textbook with all of this. Now, sadly, Laman and Lemuel do not respond the way Nephi hoped. Just like the people didn't respond well to Samuel. But at least there is hope for maintaining some kind of relationship. Okay? I haven't burned the bridge that they are crossing. There's still a chance for them to cross back. This is just like the, parent, the father of the prodigal son. You're treating me as if I were dead? Well, then I will swallow hard and allow it to happen. And in love, I will offer you the inheritance that you're demanding early. I need to do that so that when you do come to yourself off in that far country, your first thoughts of home will be positive. You'll know you can come back to a father who loves you, who honors your agency, who sees you for who you are. Okay? In this moment, in Nephi's story, they tie him up and they're plotting his death. This becomes Joseph in Egypt all over again. We've seen some Exodus parallels. He's like, wait, we're just like Moses. And they're like, yeah, you're just like Joseph. And let's tie you up and leave you to die, torn apart by the animals. Well, they're acting like the animals themselves. And what does Nephi do? He doesn't fight back. He simply prays. You can see it in verse 17. O Lord, according to my faith, which is in thee, wilt thou deliver me from the hands of my brethren, Yea, even give me strength that I may burst these bands with which I am bound. Can you hear the thesis statement guiding his words there? It's according to my faith. That's what allows me to be chosen by God. And because of his tender mercies, he will make those whom he hath chosen mighty even unto the power of deliverance. Oh, if, if Lehi and the people of Jerusalem were exhibit A to prove Nephi's point, if Nephi and Laban were exhibit B, well, here's exhibit C. Please, God, deliver me. Make me mighty enough to be delivered. And an important point there is the fact that he's praying for himself. He's, he's not saying, God, please strike down my brothers. Please change their mind. I honor their agency. I just don't want you to. No, he's praying 
can I, can, will, please let something happen to me. In our case, maybe it's, I feel bound by cords of frustration. I'm, I'm angry that they, I, I, gave, I poured my life into that child. And now they're throwing it all back in my face. Father, because of my faith in thee, wilt thou please deliver me from these bands? Wilt thou please give me the spiritual strength, the godly grace, the Christian compassion to look at my child and love them? So I'll be strong enough to break out of these these shackles I've forged for myself. Please help me. And what's interesting in the story is the miracle comes, though not quite as dramatically as Nephi envisioned. His thought was, give me strength, let me burst the bands, then they'll really, maybe there's in the back of his mind, then they'll see that I'm worth following. And instead, the way the miracle is performed is so simple. It's more still small voice than earthquake, wind, and fire, to borrow Elijah's experience. Instead of being strong enough to burst the bands, the bands just loosen and fall off his hands and feet. I guess Laman and Lemuel ditched Boy Scouts before they learned all their good knot-tying merit badges. Uh, no, this was divine deliverance, but in a subtle, humble way. And I think in a similar way, as we come into Christ ourselves, again, if they're leaving the Savior, the worst thing we can do is leave the Savior in our response to their departure. Instead, no, come unto Him. It'll give those prodigals uh, the, the right place to come home to. But pray for deliverance and just let the frustration, the angst, the anger, the worry, the anxiety... Just let it fall off your troubled heart. It's a simple miracle, but it's life-changing when it comes. What happens next? Well, even then, they're still mad. It's like, I'm doing everything the way I'm supposed to, following the Samuel principle, just praying for my own deliverance. Uh, it's nothing's working. But here's the amazing part at the end of chapter 7. Finally, when all is said and done, and Laman and Lemuel are up in arms again, ready to kill their little brother, a few people come to Nephi's rescue. And if you look at the list in verse 19, one figure ought to surprise us. It says, one of the daughters of Ishmael, but we can't tell if this was one of the two that had rebelled originally or one of the others who had not. So that might be somebody who was on Nephi's side all along. So skip that one. Yea, also her mother... But uh, Mrs. Ishmael had been on Nephi's side from the start, and so there's no change there. But then the next one, and one of the sons of Ishmael. We knew there were only two from the start of this chapter, and both of them sided with Laman and Lemuel. So one of them had a change of heart. I'm guessing it was the Ishmaelite equivalent of Lemuel, a follower by nature, but decided to switch the person <laughs> he let lead. It's like, you know, the more I hear Nephi, he's a good kid. I mean, he's going to let us do what we want, but... I wonder if he's right about that whole destruction of Jerusalem thing. I'm starting to remember my spiritual experience when God softened my heart enough to go on this crazy journey in hopes of finding some promised land I've never seen. It's that young man who changed his mind, changed his heart, and then he changed the hearts of Laman and Lemuel. 
together with the others that had always been on, Laman, on Nephi's side, they did plead with my brethren in so much that they did soften their hearts and they did cease striving to take away my life. And I think that's a beautiful oh, miracle to hope for. I might not change the heart of, the, of my target audience. But if I can change the heart of someone who's overhearing us, some third party that seems to be siding with the prodigal, but now their heart is changed to side with the Lord. But because they have a better relationship, a closer connection to the person I'm so worried about, maybe, maybe the Lord's working indirectly on them instead of directly. And I'll just trust in that. Years ago, I read a Facebook post of a former student of mine who was so mad at the church. He left it uh, and he was just spitting venom back in the direction of every member. And so, because I love him, he's one of my old students. I tell my students to this day, once a student, always a friend. And I typed in on the, in the comment section of his Facebook post how much I loved him. And I honored life's journey for him wherever the twists and turns. And I just wanted him to know I'm here for you. And if you ever want to talk and ask questions or vent or whatever you want, I, I'm here for you. Your old friend, Brother Halverson. He responded back in the exact opposite spirit than what I expected. I, I fully expected him to go, oh, bro, how? Okay, you... Yeah, not every Latter-day Saint's a jerk, you know, or whatever. And we had some good times back in, in the seminary days, and we did. I saw him post-seminary, post-mission, we reconnected, amazing guy. And then something happened, and it all fell apart. And he was so mad, including at me. Because when, when I made the comment, he responded back. With all of Facebook looking on, you... You were part of the problem. You were my seminary teacher and convinced me to make those horrible, stupid self-sacrifices. I wasted two years of my life on a mission. Think about all the tithing money I blew. And, and it was partly your fault. And I was like, wow, okay. Mm. Now is it my turn to match his venom with some of my own? Or simply to metabolize it and return anger with love? Thankfully, I opted for that and simply said to him, again, I am so sorry for whatever twists and turns your life has taken. I do love you as a brother. And this decision on your part doesn't change any of that. But I will stand behind everything I taught you so long ago. It, it's true. And if I could go back, maybe I'd try to be more sensitive I was young too, but, but I believe with all my heart. And again, if you want to talk and ask and vent and anything, I'm here for you. He was still angry. Our conversation didn't end well. But like a week later, I was fascinated to receive an email from a third party. The one of the sons of Ishmael, I suppose. It was actually another former student of mine who knew that other former student. That's why we were all still Facebook friends. And she said, as I watched him explode and vent, and then when I saw your comment, 
and then saw his response and I just kind of cringed for everyone. I'm like, oh boy. But then I saw your response to that. It's like they were just, I mean, that's the amazing thing about reading comment sections. You get to eavesdrop on other people's conversations, right? But as she was eavesdropping on ours, she said, my sister, who you also know, who has left the church a long time ago, she watched that, she read it, and we ended up having one of the best spiritual conversations we've had in years. Because she noticed the way you responded. That it was in love. Instead of in anger or even in self-defense. Again, the best thing we can do when they leave is treat them in such a way that they second-guess their decision. They're not as mean as I thought. They're not being judgmental. Why not? That would help me feel justified in my departure. Now this... The, the, the son of Ishmael is just eavesdropping. But it changes his heart. And as a result, he is later able to change the heart of Laman and Lemuel. In this story, it plays out in a couple of columns. In the life of those you love, it might take a long, long time. But be patient. Follow the Samuel principle. Be loving no matter what. With that, this chapter ends, and Laman and Lemuel actually repent. Shocking, right? They ask Nephi for his forgiveness, and I love the way he says it. I did frankly forgive them. And I don't even think he puts a period there, because he, he can't end the, the sentence on his own forgiveness, because who cares about that? It's like, it, it, it's not me you've offended, it's God. So yeah, I forgive you, no problem, okay? I just... I want, I, I want God to forgive you too. And I know he will. Tender mercies are over all that, have chosen, that he's chosen. Just please choose him. Please repent and seek his forgiveness. And they do, and he forgives them as well. And the way chapter 7 ends, this is something Elder Bednar pointed out once that I loved, that chapter 7 ends with as about, about as unified a family as you'll probably ever see in this first family of the Book of Mormon. They're all on the same page. I mean, wedding bells are about to, to ring when you get back and start meeting the families and integrating, right? You have Laman and Lemuel repenting and not just seeking forgiveness of their brother, but of their father in heaven. And we're all on the same page now, and this is a great moment. And the way Elder Bednar pointed it out was, it's in this moment that a glorious revelation comes. Lehi's dream. And is there something about two or three being gathered in his name where he will manifest himself in the midst? That when we come together in unity, the windows of heaven will open and we will receive the revelation that we need. Think about that the next time you're in ward council or a presidency meeting or in family council or talking to someone you love. Okay, unity is absolutely key. And with that, we can turn the page and see chapter 8, which so many of you are, are already experts in. So I'm just going to point out some interesting things to ponder as you study chapter 8, which is Lehi's dream. Uh, there are paintings and sculptures and movies and cartoons and all kinds of things, songs made of this one chapter. And in some ways, this is a foundational chapter for so much of what comes beyond 
in some ways, in fact, if Lehi has been reading the books of Moses and starting with the creation and the fall, he's been reading about a tree of life. And the need for a, that first family of humanity to leave it, that's the fall. But the rest of their life will be spent trying to regain it in the Lord's right way. Hmm, no wonder he has this on the mind when he falls asleep and ends up dreaming of paradise. Now, when he, when he does this, something I want you to think about is his target audience. This surprised me once it actually dawned on me with the help of a few pronouns. Early on in this, this is verse 3 and 4 of chapter 8. He says, I, I, I've, I've dreamed a dream. I've seen a vision. I want to tell you all of you. I mean, this is family home evening, right? And so gather around, everybody. I've got a story to tell. But it's interesting the way it's phrased. He says, I have reason to rejoice in the Lord because of Nephi and also of Sam. For I have reason to suppose that they, hmm, there's a third person, they, he's talking about them, not to them, that they and also many of their seed will be saved. But behold, Laman and Lemuel, I fear exceedingly because of you. And the you is a second person pronoun. He's not talking about Laman and Lemuel. He's talking to Laman and Lemuel. Please keep that in mind in everything else that we read in this chapter, that they are his target audience. Because when he realizes in the dream that, I mean, just read it and you'll see it unfold, that he's in a dark and dreary waste. Hmm, sound familiar, Laman and Lemuel? That's kind of felt, like, felt that way here in the wilderness, hasn't it? In my dream, I was following some guy in a white robe. Oh, white robe. Seems like a heavenly messenger. That, well, that's what brought me out into this dark and dreary wilderness. I was following the commands of God. And in some ways, if I'm the guy wearing the white robe in your lives, well, thanks for at least following me this far. But what's interesting about Lehi's journey in the dream that parallels Laman and Lemuel's journey in real life. Out in this dark and dreary wilderness, they go, and he's just following along. No idea. Nothing's changing. I wonder how long that took, actually. And how long Laman and Lemuel would go, just following, but blindly and angrily, unwillingly, until, Lehi says, I prayed. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, oldest sons. Because once I prayed... I began seeing things that must have been there all along. All of a sudden, I saw the destination. I saw what this journey would be for. I saw how worth it it would all be. Because I saw a tree, who, that, and the fruit of that tree, he gives this string of superlatives. It's so beautiful. White above anything I've ever seen. Sweet above anything I'd ever tasted. More desirable than any other fruit. This is the goal. This is the focal point of the dream and of the Book of Mormon. He doesn't say what it means. It's just, you got to taste it. You got to try this thing. I don't even know what to call it. Okay? Taste is one of those senses that it's almost impossible to describe. You just take it and... The juice is still dripping off your lips and you're just, oh, you got to try this thing. And that's what he's hoping for. Sons, when will you pray for your eyes to open? The way Lehi says it is, I prayed for mercy out of the Lord's abundant, tender mercies. The multitude of his tender mercies. 
Sounds like he read the thesis statement too, <laughs> right? I, I know what God is like. I have a true understanding of his character and attributes and perfections. Joseph Smith, by the way, said that is an absolute requirement for real faith. Otherwise, you will know not the dealings of that God that created you, and you'll end up murmuring. Right, Lemuel and Lemuel? But I knew God was a God of tender mercies, and so I prayed for mercy, and all of a sudden, the dark and dreary waste tur turned into a wide and spacious field, but I saw the tree that drew all my attention. Once I ate the fruit, I was so changed by it, I started looking around. It says he cast his eyes about, hoping to find his family. And that's the natural thing. Oh, those who join the church and then want all their friends and family members to learn about it. Best missionaries are recent converts, right? And he goes and finds his family off in the distance, down by some river he hadn't even noticed before. And he doesn't yet notice that that river is filthy in its water. We'll need some help next week for Nephi to show us that. I love how laser-focused Lehi is on goodness, on God, on love, on fruit, and family, and to the point that I can't see anything negative anymore. I prayed, and because of God's abundant tender mercies, the darkness is gone. I can't even smell the stench of the sewage that's going by. Oh, it's just a river as far as I'm concerned. But as I followed it to its source, I realized that, oh, that's where my family is. And so what does he do? He beckoned. That's his word. And he used a loud voice. Sometimes that's what it takes. C come see. C come and see. Come this way. I'm eating fruit like you'd never believe. And that's all it takes for Sariah and Nephi and Sam to come running. It's interesting to me. I think in some ways, because we know this story so well, we make some assumptions. And so I would actually challenge you to reread chapter 8 as if it were brand new. Forget everything you think you know and just start. That's why this week I'm not going to tell you what the tree represents and what the rod represents and what the river represents and what the building represents because we don't know yet. Lehi never explains for that, we'll have to wait till next week when Nephi gets it all, okay? We'll never learn it from Lehi. Now, as he see, so, so here's the point. How does Lehi get to the tree? No rod for him. He follows the man with the white robe. And simply following Jesus is an amazing way to reach the tree and partake of its fruit. How about Nephi, Sam, and Sariah? No rod for them either. Lehi hasn't seen it yet. How'd they get there? They followed the beckoning call and the loud voice of a servant of God. It's so interesting the ways that the Lord has to draw us unto him. Well, it's only when Laman and Lemuel refuse to that dad's got to get a little more creative where Lehi really starts to look everywhere and see, are there any tools that will help my wayward sons come back? They're not the easy ones. They don't just come when called. And so what else is there? And as he scans the horizon and looks for any possible assistance, it's then and only then that he finally sees the rod. Next week, we will talk about the rod with a possible interpretation that just might blow your mind. It was new to me when I read about it just a couple of weeks ago, okay? So stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, he sees this rod, and it, it's meant to help guide people toward the tree.
In fact, once he sees the rod, he notices right by it is a path, a straight and narrow one. Oh, so the, it, there's an easier way to get here. Just, you don't have to take my word for it, sons. If there's some, some negative experiences here and you, you're not the easily, uh, let, easy, you're not malleable. You're not easily guided. Fine, do it your own way. Just grab the rod, follow the path. The rod will help you get here. This, I love that, especially once we see its interpretation next week. It's also then, though, because, well, I'll put it this way. Even with all that help, they still don't come. And even by the end of the dream, they still haven't come and partaken. And part of the problem is, yes, he's seen all these divine helps that God has provided. There's, there's, a, there's a path. There's a rod. And then the adversary is like, yeah. <laughs> but there's also a building. And there's also a mist of darkness. Because if those are divine helps to help people get there, then I need to have some, some diabolical helps that will turn them away. In fact, in some ways, I mean, the, the order isn't, isn't always this way in the, in the text, but think about this as if it were some kind of cosmic chess match. And God and the devil taking turns, trying to influence people to go in one direction or the other. Imagine if it started like this. On, there's good and evil constantly at battle. We saw that for three weeks in a row in the book of Revelation just last month, right? So here's good versus evil. And first and foremost, good presents the tree of life. It's all that, that is. That's, that's what consumed Lehi's vision. And so how does the devil counter? Evil comes and says, oh, okay, you provided the tree of life. I will provide a river of filthy water. We'll see what that represents last, uh, next week. But the river is the diabolical counterpart of the tree of life. Okay, it's, God, it's God's turn again. Back to the good side. What does he do? Well, to protect you from the river and keep you on the way to the tree, let me lay down a straight and narrow path. To which the devil says, fine, I'll see your straight and narrow path and raise you a great and spacious building. Can you hear the parallels? Or I guess in this case, the perpendiculars. Instead of straight and narrow, it's great and spacious. A good friend of mine just said, the path has to be narrow so that we immediately feel when we're off it. That there's not a ton of wiggle room. That's not to make it hard. It's to make it easier to know when we've slipped. I love that perspective. So the straight and narrow path, as opposed to a building so great, so spacious, man, talk about all, all comers welcome. Oh, come as you are and you'll never leave. Well, what does the Lord do to counter that? His next move is to give an iron rod that, again, will protect you from that great and spacious building, keep you grounded in the straight and narrow path, point your way to the tree. But the devil's not done. He says, fine, take your iron rod. Let me enshroud it in a mist of darkness so it does the people no good. To which the Lord says, fine. There may not be something to see, though the iron rod you can still hold and hang on to. I will give you, though, a beckoning prophet, to which the evil side says, fine, and I will counter that with the mocking crowd. Honestly, to go back and forth and back and forth and to see the eternal tug of war played out in front of us. And now, remember, who's the tar target audience? Laman and Lemuel. There you are, 
with, in the valley of decision. Forget the valley of Lemuel. You're in the valley of decision. There's a river, and it's not the river Laman. It's not continually flowing into the fountain of all righteousness. It's, that's not where you're going to go. You've got to come to this tree. Please ignore the voices in the great and spacious building. Please listen to me. I'm begging you, beckoning you to come. But the choice is yours. Now, what's interesting, what, what Lehi does do, because like I said, he doesn't explain what these things represent. Wait for next week with Nephi's help. But what Lehi does in portraying the vision, he does describe four different kinds of people. Well, I should say four different groups of people. Uh, and because they're caught in the valley of decision too. And the tugs and pulls of good versus evil, tree versus river, path versus building, and so on. Where are they going to go? To me, what's amazing is these four groups of people roughly coincide with the four types of people Jesus talked about in the parable of the sower. And if you're unfamiliar with Lehi's dream, but familiar with the parable of the sower, match the two and you'll be amazed. Or vice versa, whichever one you know better and whichever one you know worse. In the parable of the sower, there's a spectrum that's really clear. It's less clear in 1 Nephi 8. But the spectrum in the parable of the sower, you have wayside soil on one extreme. Nothing ever grows there. That's like trying to plant something on the sidewalk. Next to that, you have the stony ground where things will grow. In fact, they grow pretty quick, but then they wither just as quickly once the sun starts beating down on them. There's no root there. There's no water source. Next level, we're moving in the right direction at least, is thorny ground. So many weeds. The plant actually stays and lives. It just doesn't produce any fruit. Ah, fruit. Isn't that what's on Lehi's mind? But it's so choked out by all of these thorns that it never produces anything. For that, you've got to go to the good ground. Now, in some ways, the, stony, the thorny ground was good. It grew not only plants, but weeds too. But the good ground, somebody's weeded. Somebody's overturned. Somebody's pulled out the stones. Somebody's tilled and, and fertilized, I'm sure. And what grows there, plants that bring forth fruit. You with me? Now, if those are the four across the spectrum, and the Lord is constantly trying to pull us in the direction of good ground, that's why he breaks up the hard earth of the wayside, that's why he pulls out stones, why he weeds, whereas the adversary is trying to pull everything in his direction, he's planting weeds, or tares, as he likes to call them, He's introducing stones. He's drying up living water, or at least trying to, knock, uh, to, to separate you from any access to it. He's trying to pack it down so you're a hardened heart, right? So here's the tugs and pulls. Here's the chess match going on. But now look at these four in terms of Lehi's dream. We'll go out of scriptural order so we can stick with the order of the parable of the sower. It's just simpler that way. Number one. First is the wayside soil, and you see them in verses 31 through 33. I'll read it. He also saw other multitudes feeling their way towards that great and spacious building. Notice they're following their feelings too. Once the mist of darkness comes in, you can't see the path, but you can feel the iron rod, right? I'm so interested by those that, again, want to chalk up spiritual experience to mere elevated emotion, and then want to say, oh, so emotion doesn't play any part in your life? Really? Aren't you feeling your way in other directions? Well, they were feeling their way toward the great and spacious building. It came to pass that many were drowned in the depths of the fountain. Think about that. Swallowed up in sin. They couldn't even see the river 
which is probably exactly what the adversary was after. Interesting thing about those mists of darkness is not only does it obscure your view of the tree, that's your goal, not only does it obscure your view of the path and the rod, that's how you get to your goal, but it also obscures your view of the river, which is the consequences of your sins. In some ways, I wonder if the great and spacious building is almost like a mirage floating out there on the other side just to coax people away so they drown. Well, that's what's happening here. Now, at, to this point, we haven't seen them touch the iron rod. We haven't seen them place a, 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 put a foot, not even a toe, on the, the straight and narrow path. They are going straight toward the great and spacious building. That's why I would chalk them up as wayside souls. There's no growth at all. The seed doesn't even penetrate the, 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 the crust. Okay, so they're feeling their way directly to the great spacious building. They're drowned in the depths of the fountain. Many were lost from his view. Think about that. They're out of sight of prophetic guidance. They don't want to be beckoned to. They don't want to be told with a loud voice where to go. No, I'm, I'm trying to get lost. And they are. In fact, it says they were wandering in strange roads. And strange in the 1828 dictionary is interesting. We always think it means odd and unusual. And yes, that is a definition in Joseph Smith's day. But the first definition in that dictionary, strange means foreign, belonging to another country. Mm, that's, a, that's a building built in Babylon, not Zion. Okay? The, the roads, those strange roads, are leading in directions away from the presence of God, for, to a foreign country. Now, great was the multitude that did enter into that strange building, Nephi says. So, that's where some of them ended up. Some get drowned, some get distracted, and some get indoctrinated. Whether they're swallowed up in the river, whether they're wandering in strange roads, or whether they're pulled toward the great and spacious building where they stay. Okay? That's the first group, wayside. Second type of soil is stony ground. You'll see them in verse 21 through 23. This is actually the first group that Lehi mentions. He says, I saw numberless concourses of people, many of whom were pressing forward, so far so good, that they might obtain the path. So they're not on it yet, but they want to get there. They start pressing forward till they arrive. And now I can start moving toward that tree to obtain the path which led into the tree by which I stood. came to pass that they did come forth and commence in the path which led to the tree. So they're on it. They're making progress. That's good. It's, the seed has penetrated the crust. It came to pass that there arose a mist of darkness. Oh, this is going to be an interesting metaphor to in some ways take the place of the stones in the stony ground. But it's going to stop their progress, okay, either way. So there arose a mist of darkness, yea, even an exceedingly great mist of darkness. Don't want to see anything through it. Insomuch that they who had commenced in the path did lose their way, that they wandered off and were lost. You see, the reason I connect this with the stony ground is because on stony ground, the plant did grow up quickly. It sprouted. It, it started on the path. But when things got hard, it shriveled up. It withered. It died. It was burnt by the heat of a beating sun. Well, here it's blinded by these mists of darkness. But they couldn't move forward. When Jesus interprets the parable of the sower, he describes those stones as, and the heat of the sun, I should say, as tribulation and persecution and affliction and temptation. All those things get in the way of our spiritual progress. 
He said that those plants had no root in themselves, no access to the living water. Oh, no wonder they got swallowed up in the filthy water of the river. They're just looking for some kind of water source. It's interesting to see this group of people that begin the journey but just don't continue it. Okay? Though that's not as bad as the third group. Because on thorny ground, you, you made it in some ways. Like I said, this is good enough soil for both plants and, or for both wheat and tares to grow. Both good plants and not so good. Okay? It's just a matter of what will I do with the fruit? Because on thorny ground, I don't bear any. And in Lehi's dream, this is the second group that he lists. This is verse 24 and 25. It came to pass that I beheld others pressing forward. So far, so good. They came forth and caught hold of the end of the rod of iron. That's even better. The stony ground group didn't do that. They got on the path, but didn't do a thing with the iron rod. Okay, I don't need it. There's, there's probably easier ways to get there than having to hold on to that thing. No, but this group, they caught hold of the end of it. They did press forward through the mist of darkness, clinging to the rod of iron. Remember that verb. Even until they did come forth and partake of the fruit of the tree. They made it. Here they are. They've eaten something like they've never tasted before. This is good ground. But... After they had partaken of the fruit of the tree, they did cast their eyes about as if they were ashamed. Interesting if you pay attention to the language, because Lehi cast his eyes about right after he ate the fruit too. But why? To look for people he could share it with in hopes of finding his family. He looked around, looking, wondering what people needed and knowing they needed the, the fruit as opposed to this group who looks around wondering what people think about them for having eaten it. <laughs> oh, look, they got juice dripping down their chin. Oh, how funny. Uh, a bunch of fruit eaters over there. Don't they know how high in carbs that is? I mean, come on. Whatever they were saying to make that group feel ashamed to the point that if we go back to the parable of the sower, there's no more fruit in the scene. They made it. They were so close. They're on good ground. How could you let your best hopes, your greatest potential, get swallowed up in thorns, which Jesus defines as the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the lusts of other things, the pleasures of this life, Sound like the great and spacious building? Because that's where the shame is coming from. Listen to what Lehi says in verse 26 through 28. I also cast my eyes round about. Because he's curious. Why would anyone drop this fruit? Why would anyone feel ashamed of the most glorious thing they've ever experienced? So he's, he's casting his eyes for a second time. Very different than his first. And now for the first time he realizes, oh, there's something over there? He beheld on the other side of the river of water a great and spacious building. Again, the counterpart to the straight and narrow path. It stood, as it were, in the air, high above the earth, which is a fascinating detail. There's no foundation of prophets and apostles. There's no chief cornerstone of Christ to build upon. There's no roots. 
It's not firmly planted. It's blown about by every wind of doctrine. It's controlled by the prince of the powers of the air. I mean, you could keep listing <laughs> analogies here. In Jonathan Swift's masterpiece, Gulliver's Travels, what did he see in the third voyage where he's making fun, satirizing, enlightenment, rationalism? He sees an island floating in the air. That's such a great depiction of academia, so-called. Head in the clouds, no feet on the ground. Oh, just a great and spacious building. In fact, it's a great and spacious <laughs> head that's full of itself. There's intellectual pride for you. But in this one, what's going on in that great and spacious building? How do people even get in there if it's floating above the air? Maybe it really is that mirage, and it's just trying to coax people away from the tree so they end up getting drowned on the way. They can't see the river through the mists of darkness. Maybe it's a, that's why it needed to float above it in hopes that you can, oh, just raise your sights. Look over here. You can be above everyone. Now, keep reading. It was filled with people. So, yeah, there's no shortage of people caught up in worldly ways. Babylon has a high population. They're both old and young both male and female. So yeah, Satan's no respecter of persons either. None of us are immune from, uh, to his worldly influences. Their manner of dress was exceedingly fine. Sounds like they focus on outward appearances. Worldliness, materialism are, part of, are some of their problems. They were in the attitude of mocking and pointing their fingers towards those who had come at and were partaking of the fruit. Ooh, that's where the shame came from. And after they had tasted of the fruit, they were ashamed because of those that were scoffing at them. And they fell away into forbidden paths and were lost. The earlier group got lost in strange roads. Well, these ones are worse than strange. They're straight up forbidden. Either way, they're lost, though. Hmm. Drowning? Wandering? Or somehow, I don't know how, some people actually made it to that great and spacious building? And what are they doing all day? Elder Maxwell used to joke at this and says, "Why not there anything better to do in the great and spacious building? Don't, don't they have a bowling alley or something to keep themselves occupied? But no. Again, those are those who leave the church and can't leave the church alone, like Elder Maxwell said elsewhere. And all they can do is laugh and mock and point the finger. When I read this, in Spanish for the first time. I, was, I just got my mission call. I wasn't an expert. I wasn't fluent. But I was plowing my way through the Book of Mormon. I got here. I didn't, I didn't know the word in Spanish for point. In English, it's point. In Spanish, it's señalar con el dedo. And I was reading that, and I'm like, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. I didn't know it was a, a, a way of, of saying it, so I just took it word for word. Señalar means to signal. Con means with. El means the. And dedo means finger. So they laughed and signaled with the finger. <laughs> All of a sudden, my eyes got wide. I'm like, hmm, that puts a different spin on it. But yeah, I've seen some do that too. Uh, they're signaling with fingers all right. But in this case, mm, full of venom, full of anger, full of scorn, mocking. You know what's interesting? I mentioned already that I had done that study of of every newspaper account that described the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, and how quickly they reduced the story to the absurd. That's all it was. And the more I studied it, and then began to expand beyond anti-Mormonism to study anti-Catholicism or anti-Protestantism, anti-Baptists, anti-Methodists, anti-Shakerism, anti it's all over the place. 
I realized that the common denominator throughout it all, well, not all, but almost all, is the rhetoric of ridicule. It's everywhere. That became my dissertation topic as I was studying. I was going to go throughout the entire 19th century and just try to identify the, the, the rhetoric of ridicule that was targeting the Bible. But I got so caught up in the hilarity of Thomas Paine that I ended up doing 400 pages just on him. How oh, they mock. It's, it's exactly what's happening with the Great and Spacious Building. To the point that now when I hear somebody making fun of a rival position, the red flags go up and I go, huh, you're unsure of your own position. That's why you're trying to make fun of the opposite. If you can reduce them to the absurd, then you're the only one left standing and you win by default. It's like politics where you don't trust your own platform, so you attack the, your, your opponent. And it's character assassination. It's, it's reducing them to the absurd and it happens all the time. There was a, a, in the last oh, decade or two, there was a convention of atheists and their patron saint, no irony intended there, said at one point, we must laugh Christianity out of existence. We've got to mock them into oblivion. Mark Twain, who I've told you before, was make, made fun of the Book of Mormon and the Bible to no end. In one of his most famous lines, he has one of his characters. In this case, it's Satan himself. It's so interesting. The devil says in a, in a book called The Mysterious Stranger that against the assault of laughter, nothing can stand. Think about that the next time you get made fun of. And if, you've, and if, it's, if it's been a while, just think back to the last time it happened. And sure enough, it's hard it's hard not to feel shame when the mocking, scoffing, sarcastic jabs, and yet it's an admission on their side. Those kings and queens of so-called reason are abdicating it. And those that are making fun of your elevated emotion are using an elevated emotion of their own. Oh, I've done all kinds of study on the politics of humor from a psychological, from a sociological, from a philosophical standpoint, and it is fascinating. I, I agree with Mark Twain. Until you have the eyes to see through the rhetorical sleight of hand and realize that laughter, it's smoke and mirrors. And it only affects me if I let it. Unfortunately, these people let it. But the people on good ground didn't. That's a huge difference. So for this final group, uh, it's, the, it's the third group that Lehi lists, but it's the fourth of our group. It's the good ground. They're growing. They're bringing forth fruit because they're partaking of it. And I'm sure as soon as they ate it, they're looking around for other people to be able to share it with. They're casting their eyes in the good way, in Lehi's original way. But read about them in verse 30. He saw other multitudes pressing forward. Ooh, that was the same as the previous group. They came and caught hold of the end of the rod of iron. Mm, that was the same as the previous group as well. They did press their way forward, but here's where it gets different. Continually holding fast to the rod of iron. That's, that's what makes the difference. And they did it until they came forth and fell down 
that's different too, and partook of the fruit of the tree. Now, compare that to the clinging we saw from that previous group. I told you to hold on to that verb, because I think there is a world of difference between clinging to the iron rod versus continually holding fast to it. Uh, back in my younger dating days, there was a, a horrible word you hoped never would get attached to you if you were in a budding relationship. And the word was clingy. Because if you're clingy in a relationship, then yeah, you're high maintenance because you're probably really scared of losing the other person. So you're just trying to cling to them. Not, don't let them out of your sight. And I worry about those who are clinging to the iron rod out of a sense of fear. Because fear is what's going to play into shame as soon as, somebody, as, as soon as the person you're afraid of starts pointing, starts signaling with the finger and starts mocking you. No, we cannot come unto Christ out of fear. Even if it's fear of not coming unto him or fear of consequences if I don't do what's right. That kind of scrupulosity, that kind, that's not the right motivation and that kind of fear will typically be joined by fear of man, in which case you, know, you, might, you might fall to them eventually. Whereas continually holding fast, that has, to me at least, has a different connotation. It suggests courage rather than fear. Courage born of commitment. Courage born of covenant. In, in the hymn book, in The Iron Rod, I love the line, and hand or hand the rod along. Hand or hand. It's like, I think sometimes we just kind of take our hand and kind of oh, stroll along the straight and narrow path and kind of touch the iron rod every now and again or just let our hands slide across the top. No, I think we need to be continually holding fast and hand or hand. It's like driving 10 and 2, right? And then as you're turning, you're moving the hand. You're not just <laughs> spinning, the, spinning the steering wheel. You're not, you're not navigating by your knee, that's for sure. No, I've got two hands on the wheel at all times. And hand or hand along the rod I go. That's continually holding fast. And by the time I get to the tree and partake of the fruit, I have fallen down in humble gratitude. Maybe some exhaustion there, too. It's an uphill battle sometimes. Uh, but I fell down at the feet of the Savior, at the roots of the tree. And if I'm that humble and humbled by the gift that he's given me in that fruit, then that same humility will protect me from the pride in the great and spacious building because that pride is just looking for similar pride in me. It's that pride that makes me fear what they think. Meanwhile, they're probably scared of what we think too. How oh, strange things going on in that strange building that can only be reached by going down strange roads, if it can be reached at all. Do you understand what Lehi is describing here? It's absolutely incredible to me. This is an absolute masterpiece of, of Scripture. Uh, of symbolism, of metaphor, of find the moral to the story, Laman and Lemuel, because I'm not going to give it to you. 
I'm just going to tell the story and let you sit there with it and decide how you're going to respond. You're going to be pulled and tugged between these two opposing poles. And you'll have to determine what you'll do. Now, let me give you one last clue, though, because when it talks about those that stayed at the tree as opposed to those who ate and ran, notice verse 33 and 34. I love these verses. First, Lehi laments that great was the multitude that did enter into that strange building. And, sure enough, after they entered into that building, they did point the finger of scorn at me and those that were partaking of the fruit also. So that's where you see the other groups and why they fell away and so on. But those who didn't notice this all-important phrase, but we heeded them not. And that's so important that Nephi reiterates it. He confirms it. These are the words of my father, colon. So put this in quotes. For as many as heeded them had fallen away. Now that should open our eyes. Why do people leave the fruit? Because they heed voices that are pulling them away from it. They are being influenced. There is a separate persuasive power after all. And though Nephi is doing all within his power to fulfill the fullness of his intent, which is to persuade people to come to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and be saved, there is a countervailing force that is trying to persuade and pull and pressure people away. Scorn, mockery, derision, ridicule, false promises of fine twined linen, and, ex and clothing that's exceedingly fine. Promises of popularity and pride. I mean, because this place is filled with people. Old, young, male, female, come, on, come aboard. That's so restrictive over there at the tree. There, there's only one thing to eat. Over here, we can eat, drink, eat, drink and be merry. So come on over. Uh, we are caught between the, the opposing poles. And we'll decide whether, well, we'll decide who we're going to listen to. I'm always fascinated when skeptics will accuse faithful Latter-day Saints of just being blind followers, and yet I see a lot of blind following on the skeptical side. Well, I read that letter. I heard that podcast. Uh, so many of my friends are leaving. They must know something I don't know. And then, like lemmings, we go. We, we've got to be careful. We have to think and ponder and pray and decide who to heed and who not to. This actually struck me very strongly once when I was in the temple during an endowment session. And I'll be purposely vague uh, about this, but there's a moment in the endowment when, well, I'll just tell you what, what struck me and you'll be able to figure out when this occurred. It, the, the thought dawned on me that sometimes an act of faith is in reality an act of courageous skepticism. Because believing one voice means I'm skeptical of the other. If I'm believing the voices in the Great and Spacious Building, I'm skeptical of the prophet beckoning me from the tree. But if I believe that prophet, who's crying to me to come in a loud voice, then I'm being skeptical of the mocking, scorning, pointing fingers of the, of the people in the building, right? And so when you think about the world around you, and so many people, right, multitudes in the building, so many people leaning or going in that direction, and they're falling hook, line, and sinker for the 
smoke and mirrors of the world, then you look around and go, wait a minute, why, is, why isn't that person leaving? Why is that person staying strong? Doesn't, don't they believe what's being peddled here in Babylon? Don't they care about the voices from the great and spacious building? Don't they believe them? And when you can say with faith, yeah, not, not this guy, not this girl. Everyone else may be falling prey to it. The world's clever messaging. But not these ones. These ones are skeptics in the best of ways. And it's a courageous act of skepticism to do it. I hope that made sense. Okay, Those that have ears to hear, let them hear. And if you can't hear it yet, go, to, go back to the temple. <laughs> now, with all of that, uh, this story comes to an end. And sadly, with a, a, it's a, a sad ending. Because the way Lehi finishes the, the, the parable, if you want to call it that, is with the sad conclusion, verse 35, that Laman and Lemuel partook not of the fruit. That's it. But the interesting thing is they hadn't joined any of the four groups yet. They weren't yet on the path. They're still out in the, the spacious field. In some ways, they're still in the dark and dreary waste because they haven't prayed for mercy and, and vision. But that does mean all the big choices lie ahead of them. And my oldest sons in the Valley of Decision, what will you do? Please, please. Listen to my loud voice. <laughs> Hearken to my beckoning call. Lay hold of the iron rod. It will get you through the mist of darkness. Come and partake. It will, this taste, this flavor will save you. And if you can ignore all the influences that are trying to pull you away, you will stay here at the fruit with your family forever. That's Lehi's greatest hope. And so what does he do when it's all is said and done? This is so fascinating because, again, he doesn't explain it. We're going to, we'll have to wait for Nephi's help with next week. But notice what he says in verse 37. Verse 36 says he exceedingly feared for them. I am so worried about you. Okay, Not so afraid that I'm clingy, but I'm going to continually hold fast. And here's how I'll do it. Verse 37. He did exhort them then. And... I want to define exhort in just a moment, but hold on to that word. He exhorted them with all the feeling of a tender parent. Because it's feeling, after all, either feeling the rod or feeling the pull of love or feeling the path beneath your feet, feeling the fruit in your hand or better yet, in your mouth, or feeling your way toward the great and spacious building. Either way, this is the feeling of a tender parent. And he exhorted them with all that feeling that they would hearken to his words. That perhaps, and that's an interesting admission, perhaps the Lord would be merciful to them and not cast them off. Yea, my father did preach unto them. Now, think about this loving parent and what he's trying to do. And now we can build on the lessons we learned back in chapter 7 from Nephi. How do I deal with wayward siblings? Well, in this case, how do I deal with prodigal sons? And what does he do? He balances justice and mercy, which is interesting, because he's promising the Lord's mercy, but he's also saying perhaps. 
So there's a nod to both mercy and justice. We've got to find the Goldilocks zone on this one, boys. We've got to prove these contraries. But I trust in the multitude of God's tender mercies. That's why the light came on for me and I saw the tree. But once you know that about him and pray for it, forget the perhaps. He will be merciful. But you've got to trust his justice as well. Part of this is his preaching to him. And that's, that could be a scary word because I've heard from oh, quite a few people who've left the church that one of the things that drove them out was the preachiness of people, even their own parents. So I looked up preach in the 1828 dictionary to make sure that I was on the same page as the translator of this record. And the word, the first definition of preach is what you would expect, a public discourse on a religious subject. But that's, I don't think that's what Lehi's doing. I don't think he's getting preachy and making, because that's sometimes what preachiness feels like. It's like, whoa, is, are the cameras on? Are you in some mega church uh, trying to pass around the, the, the basket? I mean, it's just you and me, Dad. Don't get preachy on me. Well, here's the second definition from 1828's dictionary. To preach is to discourse on the gospel way of salvation and to exhort, and that's the other word we used, to exhort to repentance. To discourse on evangelical truths and exhort, there's that word again, to a belief of them and acceptance of the terms of salvation. And I do believe you can preach without getting preachy. You're not standing at the pulpit. You're certainly not pounding it. But to try to explain in ways that your children or loved ones would understand the way of salvation, to just talk about this is the best way to live. You want greater happiness and peace and rest? Do what Abraham did. Seek the blessings of the fathers. You want happiness, peace, and rest? You want delicious and pure and life-changing? Then come to the, tr the tree and eat its fruit. Ah, there's some good preaching for you. And exhorting, that might come across as too strong, as if I'm, I'm being forceful, and as long as you're living under my roof, you're going to come to church with me. Well, prepare what's going to happen when they no longer live under your roof then, and they're going to try to get to that point as quickly as they can. But how's this for an 1828 dictionary definition of exhort? To encourage, to embolden, to cheer, to advise. The primary sense seems to be to excite or to give strength, spirit, or courage. I love that. that Lehi's not being threatening. He's not shaming. You don't, sh you don't counter shame with shame. You don't shame people into partaking of the fruit. Because that makes them all the more likely to be shamed out of it. Okay, it, there, no, there needs to be exhortation, but the kind that exercises no unrighteous dominion. Go back and read Doctrine and Covenants 121. Okay, I love this. But then notice the last verse. I love this even more. What we saw about preaching and exhorting and the feelings of a tender parent, that should, that's the emoji for you. Okay, if Nephi was speaking out of godly sorrow, here Lehi is preaching and exhorting out of tenderness gentleness, meekness, love unfeigned, right? He's, it, there's feeling here. He loves these boys. And so verse 38, after he had preached unto them and also prophesied unto them of many things, he bade them to keep the commandments of the Lord. And then my favorite line, and he did cease speaking unto them. That's it. That is so wise of him. In fact, it's the Samuel principle all over again. The three parts. On the one side, your will side of things, 
It's protest solemnly unto them. That's the preaching and exhorting part. It's the show them the future of their decision, the consequences of their choice. What's he doing here? He's prophesying unto them of many things. But throughout it all, and especially at the end of the day, what do you do, Samuel? You hearken to their voice. What do you do, Nephi? Well, if ye have choice, and you do, what do you do, Lehi? You know when to shut up. You know when to cease speaking. And prove to them that you believe in them, even if you fear for them. <laughs> that you trust in the tender mercies of a Father in Heaven that cares for their souls even more than you do. You want to talk about the, the feelings of a tender parent. Capitalize the P. And look no, forward, no further than tender parents in Heaven who have every prodigal's best interest at heart. They honor agency, as well as sending the Spirit to exhort and to prophesy. We know how God feels about things. He helps us see hints of what's coming down either path that we follow. But He lets us choose. Most mercifully of all, He sent His Son so that we could remake some of those decisions. Trust that too. In fact, that's what chapter 10 is about. And though we're way over time, as usual, I'm, like, I'm sorry, not sorry, I'll keep trying. But chapter 10, and I'm going to skip the last handful of verses because they fit better with chapter 11 next week. But the first 16 verses or so, I'm amazed at Lehi's testimony of Christ. Because that, that's the tree for you. That's the fruit for you. That's the iron rod and the path, uh, the, the straight and narrow path. It's all Jesus. I, I told you that Lehi didn't explain what they all meant. Well, in a way he does, because in chapter 10, he focuses on the Savior and Redeemer of the world. Namely, the Messiah of the house of Israel. Also known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Since this family's full intent is to persuade you to come unto him to be saved. Now, unfortunately, chapter 10 gets lost in the shuffle. We're so quick to jump from chapter 8 to chapter 11, because we want to see Lehi's dream and then Nephi's visions that explain it. But then you skip over chapter 9 with its beautiful, make two versions of this, and trust me, I know what I'm doing. And then chapter 10, which I'll just fly through very briefly. What ends up happening in chapter 10, verse 1, this is worth pointing out, Nephi says, I, Nephi, proceed to give an account upon these plates of my proceedings and my reign and ministry. And he said he would do this. Way back in chapter 1, I didn't read this last week, but in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, he tells us, I'm first going to abridge my dad's stuff, and then I'm going to start with my own. And here's when it happens. Chapter 10, verse 1 is his pivot point. I'm done talking about dad's stuff. I'm now ready to start the record of my own ministry. But then notice the irony. As soon as he says that, I'm going to talk about my reign and ministry. By now he's king. This is the end of 2 Nephi, and he's looking back and writing all this stuff. Wherefore, to proceed with mine account, I must speak somewhat of the things of my father and also of my brother. And that's always kind of confused me. It's like, okay, I'm done with dad, and the first thing I'm going to talk about, now that I'm going to talk about me, is my dad. You're like, uh, Nephi, you're not making a lot of sense here. It's like, actually, I, I'm trying to. 
Because what I'm going to quote from my father now lays the foundation of my ministry. In some ways, chapter nine, excuse me, chapter eight, which comes from Lehi, and chapter 10, which also comes from Lehi, draw the dividing line between them, though, and the tree of life is the, the grand finale of Lehi's mission. And what he's going to talk about now, which is about another tree, lays the foundation for all that Nephi will build upon from this point forward. It's really fascinating how that works. Okay? In fact, by the time we get to chapter 15 at the end of next week's lesson, we'll see which chapter Laman and Lemuel are more interested in. Was it dad's words in 8 or dad's words in 10? Was which tree captured their imagination? Hold on for next week for that. But notice verse 3. Uh, actually, verse 2, he's going to give you some... some he's gonna, he wants to talk about the things of the Jews. Okay, I've got to give you some stuff concerning the Jews, and it's about their future history, what, what he would call prophecy. Okay? For us, it's history. For him, it's, it's prophecy. But verse 3, let's read it together. After they should be destroyed, the Jews, that is, even that great city, Jerusalem, and many be carried away captive into Babylon, and that's what we've been warned about way back in chapter 1, so, yep, he's seen it happen. According to the own due time of the Lord, they shall return again, yea, even be brought back out of captivity. And after they should be brought back out of captivity, they should possess again the land of their inheritance. Now, that right there, 1 Nephi 10, verse 3, as far as I can tell, is the Book of Mormon's earliest mention of the gathering of Israel. And notice it is intensely personal for Lehi and his family. Because what's happened to them? They got scattered. They've been uprooted. They've been cast out. They didn't get dragged captive to Babylon, but they, they were told to leave Jerusalem, the land of their inheritance. So we talk about this kind of national scattering of Israel. Well, Le Lehi and his family were experiencing a very personal one. We got scattered too. So what does he do from there? This is where the Book of Mormon makes its greatest contribution to a discussion of the, of the gathering of Israel. And this will be a theme that will run from here to the very end. In some ways, you could say the Book of Mormon is about the scattering and gathering of Israel. The first family got scattered. They're going to be wondering, how do I get gathered? Well, here's the answer, and this is the Book of Mormon's best contribution, verse 4 and 5. He seems to change the subject, but no, he's continuing to prophesy. Yea, even 600 years from the time that my father left Jerusalem, a prophet would the Lord God raise up among the Jews. Mm, let, me, let me rephrase that. Even a Messiah. Mm, let me rephrase that. Or in other words, a savior of the world. Wow, he just got promoted three times in quick succession. <laughs> He's no, he's no mere prophet. He's not even a mere Messiah. That's too, oh, too local. That's too parochial or provincial. That's just Messiah of, King of the Jews. Oh, no, no. He's Savior of the world. And he also spake concerning the prophets, Lehi did, how great a number had testified of these things concerning this Messiah of whom he had spoken, or better said, this Redeemer of the world. What I love about the Book of Mormon's emphasis on the gathering of Israel is that it places it all within a very specifically, intentionally, intensely Christian context. Because here, from the very first mention, this is going to be a messianic move. And again, it's not just some kind of 
local Messiah. It's the Savior of the world. It's the Redeemer of the world. Jesus, he doesn't know his name yet, but he will be the good shepherd and he will gather every lost lamb, every stray sheep. That's what the gathering is all about. It's not just a geographical one. It's a spiritual one because he's the savior of all humanity. In fact, it's along those theological lines that you see the next verse, verse 6. Wherefore, all mankind, remember, it's, it's savior and redeemer of the world, not just a geographically scattered Israel. All mankind were in a lost and a fallen state and ever would be, save they should rely on this redeemer. You starting to see the Book of Mormon's purpose poking through right there? Convincing us that Jesus is the Christ, persuading us to come unto him and be saved. We're all in this lost and fallen state. In fact, it's almost as if we are wandering through a wilderness. Almost as if we are following a white-robed figure through a dark and dreary waste. Huh. But if we'll just rely on the Redeemer, all mankind, all humanity can be saved. You see, this is what the future of the house of Israel entails. This is the point of these prophecies. Lehi will actually get miraculously specific. And while he's talking about Jesus, though he doesn't know his name, he'll then talk about John the Baptist, though he doesn't, doesn't know his name either. He'll talk about this Messiah being baptized. He'll call him the Lamb of God. Oh, that has all kinds of sacrificial uh, symbols overtones. Uh, he will talk about this Messiah being rejected by the Jews, even though he tried to share with that house of Israel his gospel. But the rejection will result in his death. We're seeing scattering of Israel in light of the death of the Messiah. But then he also mentions the resurrection of the Messiah. And that accounts for the gathering of Israel. It's the bad news and the good news, just in different aspects. Scattering, gathering, crucifixion, resurrection. It's all right here. And then verse 12 is where it all comes together and a new tree is planted. Yea, even my father spake much concerning the Gentiles. Because that was the last bit of Lehi's prophecy. You see, after the death and resurrection of the Messiah, the Gentiles would receive the Holy Spirit and thereby learn about this Lamb of God. They'd also learn about the house of Israel that the Messiah had come to save, and they'll start to realize their own role in redeeming them, in gathering them. That's the point that Lehi is going to make here, and the point that the Book of Mormon will make repeatedly from this point on. This is a book destined to come to the Gentiles, so they'll know what to do to bring it to the Jews. Let's read the verse. He spake much concerning the Gentiles and also concerning the house of Israel, that they should be compared like unto an olive tree, whose branches should be broken off and should be scattered upon all the face of the earth. Ah, there's the second tree. The tree of life, there's the focal point of the gathering. That's what we're coming to. That's the, the destination once we see the path and find the rod. So the tree of life, 1 Nephi 8, is the point of the gathering. Meanwhile, the olive tree, the point of chapter 10, is the symbol of the scattering. 
They're breaking branches off. Those of you who remember Zenos' allegory of the olive tree, mm, this, is, this is where we start to see it in Lehi's teaching. But then he makes it far more personal in verse 13. Wherefore he said, it must needs be that we, that's how personal it is, we, the family of Lehi, Sariah and Nephi and Sam and Laman and Lemuel and their wives and everybody here, we should be led with one accord into the land of promise unto the fulfilling of the word of the Lord that we should be scattered upon all the face of the earth. Huh. We always talk about being gathered to the land of promise. Well, in this family's case, they're being scattered to the land of promise. But it's all so that God can keep all his promises, including gathering scattered Israel back to the original land of promise. There's going to end up being two lands of promises, each with its own Jerusalem, old and new, to which all nations shall gather before Christ himself, the resurrected Messiah, Savior, Redeemer of the world, comes to both sides of the world. There's something beautiful here. That's how personal it is for Lehi. We're getting scattered, but it's part of God's purposes. Son, you weren't sure about making two different sets of plates. Well, I wasn't sure about having two different, you know, planting two different kinds of trees. Certainly wasn't sure about two different lands of promise. But I trust God just like you did. Then, now that it's been, more per it's been personalized, now let's universalize it. Verse 14, after the house of Israel should be scattered, they should be gathered together again. Or in fine, after the Gentiles had received the fullness of the gospel, the natural branches of the olive tree, that is, the remnant of the house of Israel, should be grafted in, or, let me make the symbolism clear, or come to the knowledge of the true Messiah, their Lord, and their Redeemer. And that is what Nephi's whole ministry is going to be about. That's why he includes this as the preface to his ministry, rather than the grand finale to his father's. He'll let dad have the tree of life. He wants to stake a claim on the olive tree. And for the rest of, Le of Nephi's ministry, every time he quotes Isaiah, and he'll do that often, brace yourself, uh, all that he does in working with Laman and Lemuel, because again, they're his target audience, just like it was for his dad. They're the ones I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to work hardest to persuade to come unto the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and be saved. They're the ones that most need to be convinced that Jesus is the Christ, because Jesus is going to be the Lord of the gathering. They're the ones that need to know of the tender mercies of the Lord, that they're over all whom he has chosen because of their faith, to make them mighty under the power of deliverance, deliverance delivered from their scattered state. I'm blown away by everything that's been described here. Chapter 10 is such a masterpiece, just a, a forgotten gemstone that we skip over at our own peril. Next week, when we pick up where we left off and see the end of this chapter and how it springboards into chapter 11, you'll see all that Nephi learns about what Dad has taught us today. But thank you, Lehi. And thank you, Nephi, for being such good teachers. By way of review, if I can just run through a bunch of beautiful one-liners, Pause whenever you want, uh, take some screenshots, write yourself a sacrament meeting talk or a family home meeting lesson 
or a quick missionary devotional based on any of these passages, and, and you'll have some amazing insights come as a result. But here's, here's the list from today's material. I desire the room that I may write of the things of God. The fullness of mine intent is that I may persuade men to come unto the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and be saved. The things which are pleasing unto the world, I do not write, but the things which are pleasing unto God and unto those that are not of the world. Raise up seed unto the Lord in the land of promise. Being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, how is it that ye have forgotten? The Lord is able to do all things according to his will for the children of men, if it so be that they exercise faith in him. Ye shall know at some future period that the word of the Lord shall be fulfilled. The Spirit of the Lord ceaseth soon to strive with them. O Lord, according to my faith which is in thee, wilt thou deliver me? I did frankly forgive them all that they had done. And after I had traveled for the space of many hours in darkness, I began to pray unto the Lord that he would have mercy on me according to the multitude of his tender mercies. And as I partook of the fruit thereof, it filled my soul with exceedingly great joy. I began to be desirous that my family should partake of it also. They stood as if they knew not whither they should go. And after they had tasted of the fruit, they were ashamed because of those that were scoffing at them. And they did press their way forward, continually holding fast to the rod of iron. Many were lost from his view, wandering in strange roads, but we heeded them not. He did exhort them then with all the feeling of a tender parent. He did cease speaking unto them. For a wise purpose in him, which purpose I know not. But the Lord knoweth all things from the beginning. He hath all power unto the fulfilling of all his words. A Messiah, or in other words, a Savior of the world. Rely on this Redeemer. The natural branches of the olive tree or the remnants of the house of Israel should be grafted in or come to the knowledge of the true Messiah, their Lord and their Redeemer. Ah, oh, what a fitting invitation at the end of this week's class. Come unto Christ. Rely on this Redeemer. By the end of this year's study, if, if we are not convinced that Christ is approachable, welcoming, loving, filled with a multitude of tender mercies, then we haven't read the book right. My dear friends, come. I know I'm no prophet, far from it. But if I can use a loud voice, <laughs> amplified by the internet, and, and point in the right direction, if I can simply share what I've been able to taste on beautiful occasions when white-robed messengers point me the direction I should go. 
please choose well who you will heed because the choices you are making will make all the difference.